Well, every day we face situations that we need wisdom. It may be wisdom for a decision that you're having to make. You know, should I do this? Should I do that? Lord, what do you want me to do? It may be wisdom in how to handle a difficult situation. Maybe a family situation or a work situation or, uh, you know, something that's just challenging. Or maybe you need wisdom in how do I do this? How do I proceed in this this direction I'm going. You know, we all want and need wisdom. But the question is, who are you turning to for that wisdom? Are you turning to God? Are you getting your wisdom from the world? And so this week, (coughs) excuse me, this week in James 3, 13 to 18, James addresses another obstacle to standing firm in our faith, and that is the obstacle of worldly wisdom. And he reminds us in this passage that there are two kinds of wisdom that we have access to, worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And we have to choose between the two. Who are we going to listen to? Worldly wisdom will lead to worldliness and destruction, but Godly wisdom will lead to godliness and fruitfulness. Which wisdom will you choose? So I want you, if you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to James 3, 13 to 18, our passage this week. And if I was going to just sum up his exhortation to his readers and to us in a little nugget, I would just use these three words That his exhortation, his message is embrace godly wisdom. And you could expand on that. Embrace godly wisdom and reject worldly wisdom. But embrace godly wisdom. Live out what you're learning from God's word. And so to help us embrace godly wisdom, I want to look at two things from this passage. First, we're going to look at the test of wisdom. How do we know if we're wise or not? And then second, we're going to look at the two kinds of wisdom. And so that's where we're going in our time together this morning. So let's start with the test of wisdom. He gives us the test in verse 13, chapter 3, verse 13. And he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. You know, he begins there, by asking a question, who's wise? Who's understanding? And if I were to ask that in this room, I don't know who would raise their hands, and I'm not asking you to. But if I said, are you wise and understanding? You know, that's what he's saying. How many of you, are you wise and understanding? And it was really a rhetorical question because he wanted them to realize that, you know, they may think they're wise, but are they really wise? You know, and he he probably asked that because he had just finished, as we looked at last week, he had just finished talking to those who wanted to be teachers. And so there may have been some who thought, hey, I'm a teacher, I've got all this knowledge, I'm wise. But they're not living out what they're teaching. And so they're not. And so he's trying to make them really think through, are you really wise and understanding? And I think to answer that question, we have to understand, well, what is wisdom? What does that mean? And some people think of wisdom as intellectual knowledge. 
well, I've, I've studied all this. I've read all these books. I've gone to school for this. I've gone to seminary. I have, I'm wise. Well, I will tell you, when I graduated from seminary, I did not feel wise. I realized how much I didn't know and still don't know. It humbled me because I thought, Lord, I only know a small sliver of what there is in your word. So what is wisdom? It's not intellectual knowledge. It goes beyond that. It is living out that knowledge. Living out what you've learned, whether it's from a class or whether it's from the Word of God. You're putting that head knowledge into action. That's wisdom. Another way to put it is that wisdom is heart knowledge, not head knowledge. You know, when I was a perfusionist running the heart-lung machine, I went to school there at Texas Heart for a year and a half through the University of Texas. And I studied a lot in those classes. We had a lot to learn. But you know, if I had only gone to those classes and then sat down to run the heart-lung machine, I would have killed somebody. I had to learn, and so we had a year and a half that you sat with an instructor and then you implemented what you just learned about blood gases and anesthesia. It, if I had not put into practice what the teacher had just told me, I would have killed somebody. So it's more than just wisdom isn't how much you know. Wisdom is what do you do with what you know? How do you use it? So then he goes into the test. What is the test that shows if we're wise? And there's really two things to look for that he gives us. One is good behavior. If you're wise, if you're living out what you know, then the first thing we should look for is good behavior, your deeds. It goes back to what we talked about a few weeks ago. Are you doers of the word or are you just hearers of the word? Are you living it out? What are you doing with that knowledge? Do your actions, do your, does your behavior demonstrate that you really know what your, that knowledge is about? And then the second thing you look for is an attitude of gentleness. Do you live out what you know with gentleness in contrast to harshness? And pride. Yeah, you may know a lot and you may just bounce, you know, bounce it off people and just kind of overwhelm them and act as the expert. But that's not really wise. That's not wisdom. Wisdom is being able to communicate with an attitude of gentleness. And gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And we often define gentleness as meekness which we think of meekness as a weakness. Um, when I was in perfusion schools, just starting out, I remember I was um, just starting, it was one of my first few weeks, and I didn't really know much, and the surgeon, who I found out later, was one that loved to humiliate the new students, and he just lit into me about asking me questions. I didn't know anything, and, um, and I just said, you know, Dr. Duncan, I'm sorry. I'll do better. And my uh, instructor turned to me and he said, you are so meek. 
And it wasn't a compliment. It was, he was looking down on me like, you're so weak, you're meek. Why don't you stand up and tell them what you think? And I did learn to do that as the time went on. But, but meekness is not a weakness. I remember going home and going, I don't want to be thought of as meek and gentle. And then I read Matthew 11. <laughs> and I thought, Lord, forgive me. It is not a weakness to be gentle and meek. This word gentleness, I love the way that the Greek defines it and describes it. it the Greek defines this word gentleness as strength under control. Strength under control. You're not showing that you're weak. You're not giving up strength. I mean, you're strong, but it's under control. It's like the horse that we talked about last week. He is a strong animal, but when they put the bit in his mouth, that strength is corralled. It's reined in. So we don't use our strength to just lambast somebody. We know when to keep our mouths shut or how to speak in a gentle attitude. So when you have an attitude of gentleness, you hold yourself back. You restrain yourself. You control that power, that strength, from lashing out at somebody that said something that you don't agree with or keeps you from getting the last word in or, or debating, I am right and you're wrong. Why can't you see that this is the truth? If I were going to use, and, and I, I wrote a blog post on this, and I had to teach our staff, or not teach, but we had to take turns in our staff meeting sharing a fruit of the Spirit, a devotional on a fruit of the Spirit, and I got the one on gentleness. And um, <clears throat> I remember saying that if I were going to use one word to describe our world today, it would not be gentleness. Why? Because we're not following godly wisdom. Well, James says that we demonstrate that we have wisdom by our good behavior, which is really obedience, obedience to him and his word, and our gentleness. Those two qualities should be part of our life. Obedience and gentleness. Do you pass the test for wisdom? If not, then what needs to change? So that's the first area I wanted to look at, just the test for wisdom, uh, our good behavior and an attitude of gentleness. But now let's move to the two kinds of wisdom, and this is where we're going to really uh, dig in. James tells us that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. And as we contrast these two, we need to ask ourselves, which wisdom am I embracing? Which wisdom is characteristic in my life? So let's begin with worldly wisdom. That's in verses 14 to 16. He talks about wor worldly wisdom. The wisdom of the world is based on man's understanding, what man thinks what man's standards are. In worldly wisdom, man is supreme, not God. Man decides what's right. You can choose what sex you want to be, not God. That's worldly wisdom. I'm sorry, I got a few snickers out there. I'm sorry about that. Um, but that's, that's an example of, hey, 
we're going to make the rules. We're going to choose what's right and wrong, not God. That's worldly wisdom. So I want to break verses 14 to 16 into four parts, and then we're going to do these same four parts again when we look at godly wisdom. But let's look at these and then just contrast the two wisdoms. So with worldly wisdom, let's look first at the motivation. What is the motivation for why we follow worldly wisdom? And he gives us that in verse 14. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The motivation behind worldly wisdom is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And then he mentions these two negative traits again uh, in, in a few verses, in verse 16. So let's look at those two motives a little closer. The first one is bitter jealousy. We all know what jealousy is. You know, I don't like that she has that. I want that. But that word bitter gives it a little bit more depth to it. That, the word bitter in the Greek has the basic meaning of being pointed, sharp, prickly, pungent, kind of just obnoxious. And James just used that word, that same Greek word, just in the verses we looked at last week about the bitter water. And here he uses that word bitter metaphorically to describe the kind of jealousy that is harsh. It's sharp. It cuts. It's destructive. It doesn't care what it does to the other person. And bitter jealousy can arise when somebody gets more attention than we get. Or they seem to be more uh, a people's favorite than I am. So, yeah, bitter jealousy. Well, I don't like, or that woman, man, her marriage, she's got a great husband and great kids, and I don't like, I, I'm jealous of that, and so I'm going to make her, I'm going to talk about her. I'm going to knock her down a few notches. I mean, that's where bitter jealousy, where you see something and you think, I want that, I don't like that she has it, and I don't, so I'm going to make her life miserable, or I'm going to do something to make people not look at her with that same esteem. That is bitter jealousy and what it does. And the second motive is selfish ambition. That's when we do things for ourselves, for personal gain. We're not even doing it for God's glory. It's all about us and what we can get out of it, even at the cost of others, hurting somebody else to get that. Self is the center of worldly wisdom, not God, not even others, but self. And we're always asked, what's best for me? How is this going to benefit me? Instead of, God, how is this going to glorify you? What will glorify you? And then James rebukes them in the second part of verse 14, and he says, don't be arrogant and so lie against the truth. If you claim to be wise and have godly wisdom, but your life is motivated and characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy, you are arrogant and you're lying against the truth that you're focused on self. You're denying it. And in the Greek, 
it's, it's better translated, stop being arrogant. They're already showing arrogance. And he's saying, stop being arrogant. Look at yourself. Stop believing you're wise when your life and your attitude shows that you're not. Because he wants them to confess, look inside and go, well, maybe I'm not as wise as I thought I was. Worldly wisdom does not seek God's glory. It is rooted in selfishness and pride. And that's the motivation. So second, let's look at the source. Verse 15, the very beginning. James says the wisdom is not, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. Worldly wisdom is not from above. It's not from God. Worldly wisdom is from the world. It's man's wisdom with no consideration of God. And then the third area, let's look at the characteristics of worldly wisdom. In verse 15, he says, This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. And Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 tells us three great enemies of the believer are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And those three enemies correspond to these three characteristics of the worldly wisdom that he mentions here. So let's start. The first characteristic is it's earthly. And this corresponds to the enemy of the world. Worldly wisdom is limited to this earth, to the material world. It's focused on this world and all this world has to offer no concern about what God thinks. It's earthly. It's of this world. The second characteristic is natural. In other words, it's not spiritual. It's natural. It's fleshly. And that this corresponds to the enemy of the flesh. Paul talks about the natural man, the non-Christian, in 1 Corinthians 2.14. And he says, he can't understand spiritual things. Because he doesn't have the spirit in him. But even as believers, we struggle with our flesh. We still struggle with, with our flesh wants something and we give in and become the carnal Christian. So if we walk in our flesh, we will follow worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. And then the third characteristic is that it's demonic. And this corresponds to the enemy of the, the devil. The root source of worldly wisdom is Satan himself. The ruler of this world as he works through his demons. Satan has always promised wisdom to those he tempts. He did that with Eve. He does it with us. He tempts us. You want wisdom? I've got wisdom. I'll tell you where to get wisdom. And he tries to convince us that we can't trust God to give us wisdom. But in reality, we can't trust Satan. But he wants us to think we can. So we've looked at three areas. We've looked at the motivation, the source, the characteristics. The fourth area is the results of worldly wisdom. And we see that in verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. 
He reiterates those two motives that we talked about earlier uh, behind worldly wisdom. He, he mentions jealousy and selfish ambition again. The result of worldly wisdom is disorder and every evil thing. The Greek word for disorder here has the basic meaning of instability. It, it conveys the idea of confusion, disturbance, rebellion, anarchy. You know, when I hear those words, it pretty much describes the world we're living in today. Instability, confusion, disturbance. I mean, anarchy. That's the disorder. Disorder is the, one of the results of following godly wisdom. The second result is every evil thing. That includes things like anger and bitterness, resentment, hatred, division, murders, lawlessness. Again, that's what we're seeing every day on the news. Nothing of ultimate good results from following worldly wisdom. Only evil. You know, I, I try to watch the news a little bit every day because my philosophy in the past has been, I don't really want to know. Uh, and I, I think I'm just going to bury my head in the sand and, you know, I don't need to know what's happening in my city or the world. But lately I've said, okay, I'm going to take some time and I'm going to watch a little bit of the news every night just to see what's happening so I can pray. I want to be able to pray for my country, but if I don't know what's going on, how can I pray? But it's discouraging. It's depressing. I mean, you can't turn on the TV and watch the news without reading about shootings. Another one yesterday. And whether it's in a school or a mall or a Kroger, whether it's just people going into stores and filling up their carts and walking out as if nobody's going to touch me. There's no respect for law and order. Or coming down the freeway, I take my life in my hands every day coming in on I-40 and this morning there was a wreck. It took me an hour to get here. But I mean, every time I get on that freeway and there are cars that are going 100 miles an hour zipping across all five lanes and people get killed. We are living in a time where the world seems to be following worldly wisdom. And we're seeing disorder in every evil thing. It's all about man and self. This is what I want. I'm going to do it. If I want to go 120 miles an hour, I'm going to do it. If I don't like what you're doing, I'm going to shoot you. That's the result of worldly wisdom. Reject it. Instead, embrace godly wisdom. And that brings us to that. We're going to move into godly wisdom now and contrast it with what we just talked about. And godly wisdom is, he, he covers that in verses 17 to 18. And in these two verses, he points out what godly wisdom is in contrast to worldly wisdom. And we're going to look at those same four areas that we did with worldly wisdom. So let's start first with the source. We're doing these a little bit out of order, but 
The first thing he touches on is the source of godly wisdom. In verse 17, the very beginning, he says, But the wisdom from above. Worldly wisdom is not from above, he said. It's from below. It's from the earth. Godly wisdom, the source is from above. It's from God. God is the source. Then second area, the motivation. Again, this is the beginning of verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. And some scholars would put this word pure as one of the characteristics of godly wisdom. But I like the view, I take the view that several scholars have that this is actually the motivation behind godly wisdom. Because he says, first, purity, then all these other things. In this context, this word pure gives a picture of being untainted, not corrupted from any jealousy or selfish ambition. It's pure. This, this, your motivation doesn't have the selfish ambition and the jealousy that worldly wisdom does. It's pure. Our motive, our motivation for seeking godly wisdom is purely for the purpose of glorifying God. That's what we want, to bring Him the glory. The third area is the characteristics of godly wisdom. And there's quite a few of these. We're going to go through these quickly. This is the second part of verse 17. First, he says, godly wisdom is peaceable. Godly wisdom leads to peace, not discord, not division. The truly wise person that's following godly wisdom doesn't stir up controversy. He doesn't stir up dissension and division. He knows when to keep his mouth quiet, when to say something and when not. Godly wisdom seeks to bring people together instead of divide. Second characteristic, it's gentle. And we talked about gentleness earlier, so I won't spend much time here. But a gentle person following godly wisdom, is, he's humble, he's patient. He's considerate of the other person. He's not harsh going, you idiot, I can't believe that you did that or that you believe that. Don't you have more wisdom than that? That's not gentle. You don't yell or argue to prove your way is the right way. Again, it's showing strength under control. Third characteristic, it's reasonable. A believer who embraces godly wisdom is open to reason with the other person or people. He's open to discussion. You know, let's talk about this. Tell me why you think that's the way it should be. And he can admit he's wrong. He may listen and go, you know, I've never thought about that from that perspective. Thank you for sharing that. That makes sense. I, I would think, you know, that's a reasonable person who is not just going to force his view. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't stand firm when it goes against the essentials of our faith. Yeah, we stand firm there. But there are so many issues today that we are fighting over and arguing about that are not essentials of the faith, that are not black and white in the Word of God, and we're just fighting each other. 
I'm almost ready to say I'm done with social media because of things I see Christians write and say. You know, uh, when I was getting ready to come to Memphis, I met with a, a women's director there, and I said, Diane, can you give me three nuggets of wisdom for leading a women's ministry and working at a church? And she gave me three. I only remember one, but it's a good one. She said, pick your battles. Because you're not, got, not every battle is worth fighting and losing blood over. Not every battle is worth winning. Pick your battles wisely. There are some things worth fighting for, and there are others that they're not. The wise man is willing to listen to other views and to change if he's proved wrong, but he will also stand firm on those things that are God's essentials of our faith. The fourth characteristic is full of mercy. The person who has godly wisdom, he forgives those who have wronged him. He overlooks things that have been done to him, offenses. He has compassion for others. He has that attitude of compassion toward others that Jesus has. He understands the gift of mercy, and so he extends it to others. Fifth, godly wisdom is full of good fruits. And this refers to our actions, our good deeds, as well as the fruit of the Spirit. And this goes back to what James was saying in chapter 2, 14 to 17, that our good deeds, our works, demonstrate our faith in Jesus. Carolyn Downs uh, talked about that. You know, faith without works is kind of empty because our faith... We, we're, we gain salvation by faith alone, but if we have true saving faith, our lives should show that, should support that. Six, godly wisdom is unwavering. And the word in the Greek here literally means undivided, unwavering loyalty to God. The believer who embraces godly wisdom is single-minded, in his devotion to God. He's not partially devoted to the world and partially devoted to what God says. Well, I like what the world says here better. Oh, but I'll take what, the, what God says here better. That's not him. He's unwavering, devoted to the Word of God and pleasing his Savior. And then seventh, the last characteristic, it's without hypocrisy. Godly wisdom is sincere. What you see in a person who is living out godly wisdom is not a mask. It's not a cover-up. He doesn't cover up and hide who he is or what's going on. The person with godly wisdom, he's genuine. He's authentic. He's transparent. You know, one of the things I loved about our retreat this year, our girls' getaway, was our speaker. And for those of you who were there, you know what I'm talking about. You know, sometimes you can get up at a retreat and you want people to think you've got it all together and, and uh, okay, you know, let me share some things. She didn't. She shared wisdom with her mask down and totally just exposed herself and said, this is my life. This is my family. We're not perfect. That's what godly wisdom is, not wearing a mask 
but being real with people. Authenticity without hypocrisy. You don't say one thing and do another. And then we come to the last area of godly wisdom, and that's the result. In verse 18, the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. I don't know about you, but I thought this was a hard verse to figure out. And even uh, scholars differ a little bit on their interpretation. In a simple way, I would say this verse means the seed is godly wisdom. So godly wisdom produces fruit. The fruit is righteousness. So when we plant a seed for a flower, that flower will come up. When we plant godly wisdom, when we use godly wisdom, the fruit of that is righteousness becoming more like Christ. And it's sown in an attitude of peace. You need water, you need fertilizer. Well, peace is kind of that that area, the, that those nutrients to help that seed, godly wisdom, produce righteousness. So, I know that's a lot this morning. James exhorted his readers and us to embrace godly wisdom and reject worldly wisdom. And as we look at the two of them, it's pretty simple to me which one I want, but do I have it? And how do I get it? And so I want to just close by giving you three quick takeaways of how do we gain godly wisdom. And this is nothing you don't already know. I'm just reminding us of three things to help us embrace godly wisdom. One, stay in God's word. Ladies, don't let God's word get pushed out of your life. Don't spend more time listening to the news or reading what's going on on the internet, listening to what the world has to say, then you do listening to what God has to say. Stay in his word and let his word fill your mind, not the world. Second, stay attentive to his Holy Spirit living in you. The prompting of him, when, when you're in a discussion and somebody brings up something and you're getting ready to just Blast that person and say, no, that's wrong. How could you say that? And the Spirit prompts you and goes, "Mm, just be quiet. That you would be attentive to the Spirit's leading, prompting you to say something or not to say something. And then third, stay obedient to His leading. Stay obedient to His Word. Stay obedient to when the Spirit prompts you and says, I don't think you should say that, that you would obey and go, you're right, I want to say it, but I'm not. I'm going to zip my lips. Those are three takeaways to help us embrace godly wisdom. And that's my prayer for us, that we would not get caught up in the world, but we would embrace his wisdom and follow him. Let's pray. Father, the world does seem to be shouting loudly at us these days, telling us what we should think and believe and how we should act, what we should do. 
But God, remind us every day, every moment, that you're the one that we listen to. You're the one that has wisdom. You're the one who knows what's best. You're the one that we need to follow wholeheartedly, not the world. Father, help us do that. And we pray this in your son's precious name. Amen.